You may be seated. You will obviously recognize that we're doing things a little bit different this morning, and we're going to end in communion, a lot more worship and celebration, and then the offering at the end. That way you're not confused by anything that takes place. A lot of information in your bulletin. We hope that you'll read it and be a part of everything and anything you can be. And I encourage you to do that on a regular basis. Would want you to pray for uh, Bob Thomas, our executive pastor, Bob, and Rob Douglas from the district office, and a couple of other pastors are in Russia this morning. We're traveling over the next two weeks in that particular area. There are a number of missionaries that are going into some new areas. And Bob and a small team are there trying to explore how we as churches in this district of Western PA can connect with them and pray for them and pray over them. So pray for them, Grace and the family, as they're here and the other families. When you're a half a world away, it's a little bit difficult to call up and see how you're doing. So uh, we'd appreciate your prayers. About every three or four months here, I say to you, you don't want to miss next Sunday. And I don't think I've lied yet, and I think I've been right on every occasion. I'm sure you'll tell me if I haven't. But I'm saying this again, you don't want to miss next Sunday. Next Sunday morning here on our stage is Children of the World. Children of the World International Choir is going to be here next Sunday morning. Children of the World International Children's Choir is comprised of orphaned or disadvantaged children from around the globe. Travel 10 months a year, and we're just honored to be able to have them on a Sunday morning here next Sunday. Every program has a lot of testimonies about their personal experiences, where they're at in their relationship with God. Sometimes you'll hear some songs in English, other in some of the native languages, but you do not want to miss. We had it years and years ago. And it's a great opportunity to find out what God's doing around the world in so many places. You will also recognize next Sunday it's an opportunity to understand some of the poverty around the world. These kids represent people who over one billion strong live in poverty. 400 million of them lack access to clean water. Their desire is to change the world one child at a time by putting a face to some of those needs. And so they're going to be here next Sunday morning at both services. I'd love to have you here. More than that, I'd love for you to invite somebody. We'd love to have two full houses next Sunday morning as we see what not only God's doing around the world, but how we can be involved in that and how we can pray for them on a regular basis. We would appreciate that very, very much. One of the questions that I'm often asked as a pastor is, where is God when tragedy strikes? Whether it be personal tragedy or very, very public tragedy. And my answer is usually the same. He's in the same place he was when his son was dying on the cross. When he saw his son beaten and scourged and hung on a cross between heaven and earth, stretching out his arms and inviting everybody and anybody who would come to come to me when you're weak and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Last Sunday morning in the beginning of the sermon or in the middle of the sermon, I mentioned the Knock football team and one of the classiest coaches I've ever met, Mike King. Last Friday night was senior night at Knock High School, and Brian and Tammy Summers paraded their daughter out into the field because she was a senior. And this past Friday night, they were on the field because obviously, if you know anything about the news this week, Tam, or Alexis passed away. What I saw on Friday night, as so many of you see, and I know for so many parents back to 2002 when seven students from Slippery Rock were killed in accidents, it was a nightmare of a year. I saw a number of things on Friday night and throughout the last few days that just stunned me. So often we say football is just a game, and so often it is. But Friday night it was much more than a game. It was an opportunity for an entire community to gather around a family 
and uh, encourage them and to love them and support them. And it was an opportunity for the Knock family that uh, I just happened to be a part of because where I live, there are so many other great schools in this area, and I recognize that. But it was an opportunity for the Knock family to just come together. And Friday night was a phenomenal experience for those that were there. Uh, just to, again, remember that life is so unbelievably fragile and such an incredible gift. And the only way to get through that is the grace of God. Three or four Sundays ago, I mentioned in a sermon that I have, in my years of experience, seen so many families walk through tragedy with Christ and without Christ. And there is an unbelievable difference. I know it from experience. Many experienced it firsthand this week. Brian and Tammy's faith was absolutely astounding. And their grace and, and their ability to walk through that process was unbelievable. And so this morning, as I just spend a moment praying for them, for Mike, as he did a phenomenal job of pulling that team together on Friday night. And uh, when I saw that team kneel, and so often in high school sports, you very seldom hear this, but when I saw that team kneel, and so many of those kids say out loud, I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me, it was one of the most moving moments in my life. Since I found out early Tuesday morning when I woke up, I've obviously done nothing but cry. Scripture says we ought to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I can do that part really well. On Friday night, one of the little girls from our church, Megan uh, Mayan, came over to me and talked to me for a minute, and I started to cry about the situation, and she hugs me. I'm thinking, I'm supposed to be hugging you. And I thought, what a great little girl. So this morning, we're going to pray uh, just for a moment for them. I know there's so many other situations. I recognize that, but pray for them. For New, New Life Community Church, Chris Marshall, who did the funeral and that church this morning, as they come and celebrate in a very different way, I'm sure, than uh, what we would have this morning. Father, I thank you for grace. It is amazing. And what I've seen this week in so many lives and so many people has been a reminder that grace isn't a word and our relationship with you isn't a phrase and that I can do all things in Christ is not just a scripture verse. It is absolute life. It is power. And so this morning, we as a church family lift up another church family, New Life Community Church. And I lift up Chris to you as he shares your word this morning, whoever happens to be sharing, and I trust that they feel and sense your power in amazing ways. For Brian and Tammy and so many others that are connected and related to this situation and other families who were reminded again of tragic loss in their life. So many of our students so many years ago uh, were taken in Slippery Rock and so many other families have relived those experiences in these last few days. So your word tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And so we mourn the loss of an incredibly wonderful young girl. And we ask in the name of Jesus that your power and your amazing grace will sustain them and that through all of this, your name will go out. And students who heard your word very clearly on Friday, from Andrew and from Chris and so many other people, may they recognize that you are the answer to life. And you are the only way to get through this life and into the next. And so we ask in the name of Jesus that you will continue to pour out your, your faith and your grace and your glory in the lives of these students and teachers and those who are involved. Thank you for men like Mike who just love you and serve you and do it with such class, class and grace. For every teacher who's involved in changing the life of a student in so many of our schools, I ask that you will use them in profound ways as they touch the lives of people. In the name of Jesus, we pray.
two other questions I'm often asked that I want to share with you this morning. One is, what was church like in Bible times? What was it like to go to church a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago? What was it like to go to church three thousand years ago? What was it like in Bible times? The second question that I'm often asked is, why does it seem like the God of the New Testament and Jesus seems to be one of love, forgiveness, tenderness, and grace, and the God of the Old Testament seems to be one of judgment, conquest, and punishment? This morning, for a few moments before communion, I want to touch on both questions. Not answer them completely, but touch on them. One thing that you need to remember when comparing the Old Testament to the New Testament is that in the New Testament, you've got to view it within the context of a century. And in the Old Testament, you've got to view it within the context of millenniums. And that's just vastly different as we try to draw conclusions as to what we see in the New Testament that was written within the context of approximately 100 years or so, and the Old Testament was written within the context of three or four millenniums. One of the things that I believe you're going to find as you begin to draw some of those conclusions is that you will see that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If indeed you take time to be in the Word of God on a regular basis, and one of the things we challenge you with here over and over and over again, and we will again this morning in the message, if indeed you're in the Word of God on a regular basis, and I hope and pray that you are, I'm absolutely certain that you will see that God is full of grace, amazing tenderness, incredible compassion, overwhelming mercy, unquenching forgiveness, and judgment and punishment. You will notice it all over the pages of the Old and the New Testament. And this morning, as we find ourselves in Nehemiah chapter 8, and specifically chapter 9, I think you're going to see all of those aspects of God in one brief chapter as he began rehearsing the history of the nation of the Israelites. One of the other questions that I'm sometimes asked is, what was it like in Old Testament or New Testament times to go to church? And to be honest with you, it's hard to answer because we weren't there. And the context has changed dramatically. Nehemiah and Ezra, the books that we're going to read in this morning, was written 400 years even before Christ. And obviously now we're over 2,000 years since Christ was here. But what you'll see this morning is I read just a few verses out of chapter 8, some amazing similarities to what we still see today. This morning in Nehemiah chapter 8, I want you to look with me just to the first few verses. Nehemiah chapter 8, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, now you've got to back up a whole book, obviously, to find out his story, but he one of the first ones that came out of captivity to re- lead the people of Israel back to the promised land. Nehemiah comes now to do the rebuilding. Nehemiah is the governor at this point. Ezra is the prophet or teacher or scribe. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. On the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women who were all able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of men, women, and others who could understand. All the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the teacher of the law stood high on a wooden platform built for that occasion. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. He opened it and the people stood up. Notice the similarities 450 years before Christ to what maybe you have grown up with or what we see in so many contexts today, even in the contemporary church, as contemporary as we say it is. 
Or as modern as we say, we do it. Look at the fascinating similarities. Number one, you notice what? They gathered together as a unit, which is what we do every Sunday morning. Secondly, the Bible was read how? Aloud. Everyone heard it. Everyone was there. Ezra stood in a position where everyone could see him. That's why I'm on a platform. Any of you have ever been to D. James Kennedy Church or a Presbyterian church that had a really high platform? D.J. Kennedy's church, well-known for evangelism explosion, I went to a couple of times in Florida, had a spiral staircase up to it and in that context. To be honest with you, I'm uncomfortable this high or removed from me, not because I'm afraid of heights, although I am, but I just don't like to be that removed. What you may notice in the next few weeks is that I will be down there in a little bit of a different forum. But in this context, many of you grew up in some churches where it was always that way. Notice also the people stood up during the reading of the word. How many of you grew up in a church where the pastor, when their word was being read, said, stand as we read the word of God? I grew up that way. Many others grew up in a context like that. Notice also what it says. The people lifted their hands. That's not something reserved for the Pentecostals. I've never understood how sometimes we straight, stiff evangelicals or mainliners think that the only ones that can raise their hands are the Pentecostals. And we look around the room saying, oh, there they are. Now, you'll notice I do that. A lot of people do that. Sometimes I can't keep them down. One of the Hebrew words for praise in the Old Testament is the lifting of the hands. It has nothing to do with whether you're charismatic or Pentecostal or evangelical. It's an opportunity for us as the children of God to recognize the blessings of God and to lift our hands in praise and adoration. You will also notice in verse 8 that the Levites, or the priests or pastors of their day, explained the meaning of the Scriptures. Look at verse 8. They read from the book of the law, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. 2,400 years before we sit here in this sanctuary today and before you went to church somewhere where you grew up, you're going to see so many things that are similar to what we do today. So much has changed. But you'll find out that there are things that aren't necessarily that different, even when we talk about it. But the people of God have always gathered around the Word of God and recognized the power of God and recognized the power of the Word of God and wanted to respond to that in some way. And this morning, as we unpack just for a few moments, Nehemiah chapter 9, you're going to see all of those aspects and a response to the Word of God that was absolutely captivating and riveting and really ought to be a part of our routine almost every time we gather around the Word of God. Nehemiah chapter 9. Before we do, I just want to point out one thing real quick. For those of you who are always looking at your watch to wonder when the service will be over, did you happen to notice how long their services were? Look at what it says in chapter 8, verse 3. They read it aloud from daybreak till when? Till noon. That's about what? Six-hour service. Look at what it says in chapter 9, verse 3. They stood where they were. They read from the book of the law, their God, for a quarter of the day. And then they spent another quarter of the day in confession and worship and adoration. So whether that would be a quarter of the daylight hours or a quarter of a 24 hours, it doesn't really matter. I'm just telling you, that was longer than a 63-minute service. <laughs> So often we find ourselves in our context in America very captivated by the fact that every service ought to be an hour. God, you have an hour. Go ahead. Okay, God, your hour's about up. This is, this is now over an hour, God. This is pretty long. 
And I've never, and I'm like that. I, I get that. I've got a pastor friend who on Sunday morning has four services. Every service is scripted for, 60, for 55 minutes because they have to have such a turnaround. They have a small sanctuary and a huge audience. And I said to him, what happens when the Spirit of God shows up? He said, he's got 55 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> what intrigued me by that statement was this. So often we think the Spirit stays up and shows up if we linger. I don't want to get up and worship if our service is 12 minutes if the Spirit doesn't show up. So many times we get into context of time constraints, and believe me, I was waiting at the airport on Tuesday night, flew to Denver for one day, just a day meeting, and flew back, and my son-in-law was going to pick me up, and he said, uh, I'm running a little bit late, you need to wait for a few minutes, and I text back saying, I don't wait very well at all. <laughs> Next thing I know is my son-in-law calling me. <laughs> I don't really care. <laughs> Walk the butler. We have a wonderful relationship. I adore him. Every once in a while, when you think the service is too long or going over time or you think it's just extended its time constraints, go back to Nehemiah chapter 8 and 9 and just remember, it could be six hours. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 5. What I want to do this morning is just read the majority of this chapter and look at four observations that you're going to see out of this. So I want you to be in the Word of God. I think some of it may scroll on the screen. I'm not sure. I want to begin at verse 5. As the Levites, and it names them there, gathers the people together. And, and now what you're going to see in this section of Scripture is a rehearsal of the grace and the glory and the power and the forgiveness of God all over the pages of the Old Testament. He said to the people, Stand up and praise the Lord your God who... It's from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name. May it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host. The earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You gave life to everything. The multitudes of heaven worship you. He mentions Abraham and God's covenant promise to him. Verse 9, you saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry, the Red Sea. He sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of this land. You, you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. Verse 12, by day you led them with a pillar of cloud. By night, a pillar of fire. You gave them light along the way that they were to take. You came down from Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. He gave them rec regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath. He gave them commands, decrees and laws for your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven. In their thirst, you brought water from the rock. Verse 16, but they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked. They didn't obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles that you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return them to slavery. But you're a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. You didn't desert them. Even when they cast themselves an image of a calf and said, this is our God who brought us out of Egypt, they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you didn't abandon them in the wilderness. Verse 20, you gave your good spirit to instruct them, you didn't withhold your manna from their mouths. You gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes didn't wear out, nor their feet become swollen. You gave them 
kingdoms and nations, a lot of them, even the remotest frontiers. Verse 23, you made their children as numerous as the stars in the sky. You brought them into the land that you told their parents to possess. Their children went in and took possession of the land. Verse 25, they captured and fortified cities and fertile land. They ate full and were well nourished. They reveled in your goodness. But they were disobedient, rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. You delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. When they were oppressed, they cried to you. From heaven you heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverance. As soon as they were at rest, they again did evil in your sight. And you abandoned them in the hand of their enemies. When they cried out again, you heard from heaven. And in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. You warned them in order to turn them back to your law because they were arrogant and disobeyed your commands. Verse 30, for many years you were patient with them. By your spirit you warned them through the prophets. Yet they paid no attention, so you gave them to the hands of neighboring people. But in your great mercy you didn't put an end to them or abandon them, for you are really a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore, God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let this hardship seem trifling in your eyes, this hardship that has come upon us. It has all happened to us, but you remain righteous. You acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. Four things that you cannot help but notice out of one chapter of God's incredible sacred scripture. Number one is this. God always is, always has been, and always will be. A God who is very full of grace and unbelievable mercy. Nehemiah chapter 6, or verse 9, verse 6. You alone are God. You made the heavens. You heard their cry from the Red Sea, verse 9. Verse 10, you sent signs and wonders. You made his name for yourself. In their hunger, you gave them bread. In their thirst, you gave them water. But you are a forgiving and gracious God, verse 17. Compassion is slow to anger and abounding in love. Verse 31, by your great mercy, you didn't put an end to them. You are a gracious and merciful God. All through the pages of Scripture. Whether you think the God of the New Testament or the God of the Old Testament may be different or not, all through the pages of sacred scripture, you will see that God is incredibly gracious, unbelievably loving, incredibly merciful, and overwhelmingly forgiving. And what he does is stretch out his arms to us all through the pages of life in scripture. It says, come to me, and I'll give it to you all, and then some. Second thing you can't help but notice in this context, as well as in any context and you read in the Old and the New Testament, with obedience comes amazing blessing, and with a dis- disobedience will always be consequences. With obedience comes amazing blessing, and with disobedience there will always be consequences. The blessings of God are not always wealth as some teach. The blessings of God are forgiveness. They are guidance. There is promised Holy Spirit, even in this section of Scripture in Nehemiah chapter 9, we're reminded again that you sent us your Spirit. It wasn't something only reserved for the New Testament. The Spirit has His hand all over the Old Testament as well. Peace in the midst of the storms of life. Psalm 23, you are my, you are my sovereign God. You're everything I need. You walk with me even through the valley of the shadow of death. There's nothing I need that you can't provide. All the way through the Old and New Testament, God over and over and over again says, I just want you to know, when you follow me, when you obey me, when you love me and you serve me, I'm telling you, I will pour out more blessings than you can contain in a lifetime. But I want to be honest with you. When you turn your back on me and walk your own way and do your own thing, you are left on your own. 
And the consequences of that are overwhelming. Will cost you your life and will cost you your eternal life. And all he asks is us to follow him. And as we do, he gives us more than we can contain. With the obedience of God comes an amazing blessings of God. And with the disobedience will always come consequences. And you can't help but open any section of Scripture and notice that that's true. And the fourth thing I want to point out, that when you hear the Word of God and really understand the power that it contains, it should always lead, in some context or the other, to honest confession, great joy, and worship and adoration. One thing you'll notice in between these that I didn't read here this morning, in between chapter 8 and chapter 9, as the Word begins to unpack itself, and the Word is read over and over again, is that these people pour themselves out in honest and open confession. Matter of fact, it says they did the biblical theme, and that is they came in sackcloth and ashes, and a visible recognition of the fact that we have sinned before you, O God. Every time we gather together around this table and around communion, we rehearse the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that talks about what Jesus did that night in that upper room with his disciples, how he took bread and broke it and blessed it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. And then he took the cup and passed it around and said, this cup is a recognition of a new covenant bought and paid for by my blood. But that section of scripture also finishes every single time by saying, don't ever take the bread or the cup without honest, open confession, without recognizing some necessity for some introspection, to come to God clean with clean hands and a pure heart. doesn't mean you have to be perfect. None of us are. But it does mean I recognize the price that was paid for my redemption. And when I understand the pages of the Old Testament or what I visibly have in my hands in a few moments, the unbelievable grace and mercy and forgiveness and tenderness of God, it will always lead me to say, God, I am so sorry. Because this week or last week or yesterday or this morning, and then list to him whatever the issue may have been. And I want to come to you this morning and recognizing your love and your grace and your glory and your power. And I want to come to you in these quiet moments and just simply confess to you what I've done. And I want to walk in this life with you clean and pure. And I want to recognize that I do want to live a life of obedience because I know with that comes abundant blessing. And with disobedience comes an enormous amount of consequences, many of which have already paid. So God, I want to come to you this morning and just this honest, open time with clean hands and a pure heart. I want to hold these elements in my hand. I want to be reminded of your grace. And then I want to spend some time, as we will at the end, in just worship and adoration. The power of the Word of God should always lead us to those things whether it's being a, a recognition of where I am and what he has done, a recognition of how much he has provided, or a recognition of how free I am now in Christ because once I was blind, but now I see. It should always lead to honest confession and honest, glorious celebration and adoration. And this morning, we just want to do all of that as we can in these moments together. You're going to see a story, and every so often, and, and if you've ever looked at our website, it'll be a place where you can share your story, because they're all over our audience. Every one of us have a story. And this morning, you're going to see a story by a young man named Ryan. And then Justin and the worship team are going to come out, and they're going to lead us in a song, and 
It'll be very natural. You'll see the communion stores come down, and they'll begin at some point in the service to share the elements with you. And here in our context at Community Alliance, we just ask you to help the person beside you. The bread and the cup are in the same tray, and serve one another. And then wait till all of us are served. Then at appropriate time, we'll lead you in that. In that process, whether there's music or not, doesn't matter. Spend some time in confession and adoration. Praising him for the fact that you once were blind and now you see. Confessing to him some of the issues that you've wrestled with this week. And then join us together as we spend some time in worship and adoration at the end. Father, I thank you for your love and your grace. I thank you for the fact that you really are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this morning as we celebrate that, in this place, may your glory just shine. May you hear from us and may we hear from you. And may this be a day where we recognize that you are the same. And we come to a God who loves us, cares about us, walks with us through the deepest waters of life, promises us amazing blessing. And so, Father, may our hearts desire this morning to be obedient, to recognize the sins of our fathers and our own, and the price that was paid, make a decision this morning to live a life of obedience and one of adoration. In the name of Jesus, we pray.